Welcome to Lakeland Community Church, where we have it all together. I want to do some imagining this morning, quite a lot. So let's start out. I would like you to imagine a child, a toddler, and a big dog. And we've all seen this happen. Uh, the kid goes up to the big dog, and he reaches out, and he pulls on the dog's ear. And the dog goes, and rolls his eyes and gets up, walks over, lays down the other side of the room. And the child watches the dog's tail on the tile floor every once in a while go, thump, thump. So the kid goes over with tennis shoes on, waits for it to get flat on the floor, and then stomps on the dog's tail. And the dog yelps and gets up and goes into the back bedroom. But the child can follow child goes back, sees where the dog lays down, sizes him up, and then with a gleeful little cackle, runs up, jumps in the air, and comes down with both knees on the dog's ribs. Crush! And the dog yelps and growls and goes downstairs because there was a time the kid couldn't go to the basement, but that time has passed. The kid goes down into the basement, and that's where the toys are, and he finds a plastic hammer. He goes up to the dog, and the dog's looking up, and he takes the hammer, and he bashes him on the head, and the dog bites him on the arm. And the kid freaks and runs off. Now the question is, what should happen next? There are some people who would say the dog should be put to sleep. The dog shouldn't bite a kid no matter what. Dogs should know better. There are other people who will say, a kid needs to learn not to be picking on big dogs. In fact, that probably just happened. They probably have now made their peace, and they'll be able to live together better in the house now that there's a new understanding between them. I'll not try to convince you one way or the other. People tend to be entrenched where pets and kids are involved. But I want you to be thinking of that story as we go into Acts chapter 5 this morning where we're going to see two people who got themselves bitten by a very big dog. Their names are Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira pick up uh, exactly where we left off last week. They are part of a church, husband and wife. They are Ananias and Sapphira. And they're part of, the, of a new thing God is doing, the church in Jerusalem. And there are exciting things happening. There are people taking the teachings of Jesus and living them out. Jesus, who said, if you have two coats, give one to the poor. People in Ananias and Sapphira's church are doing that. If you have two loaves of bread, give one to the poor. And then last week, somebody named, nicknamed Barnabas, which means encourager, said, well, what if you have two pieces of land? He sold a field. He gave all the money for the care of the poor in the church. People start doing this. They start selling their houses and other properties they own and manage. They're bringing the money into the church. And Ananias and Sapphira see this. They see poverty eliminated in their church. And they want to be a part of this exciting thing God is doing. And they own a piece of land. So they go out and they sell it. Now the scripture doesn't say what happened between that verse and the next. So we'll have to do a little imagining. But I imagine they had to first sort all that money out on a table to make sure they'd gotten the full amount. And I'm imagining now one of them must have said, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Can we really just give that much away? 
to a church? Whatever that is, this is the first one I've ever been to. And then one of them must have said, well, we don't have to give it all. Maybe one of them said, well, won't that make us look cheap? That Barnabas guy looked like he gave all from the field he sold. Other people have been selling houses. Can we just give a part? Won't that make us look like we were hedging our beds? Well, it's none of their business. Plus, our property is way more valuable than what some people sold. We'll still be giving more than any of them. No one needs to know. It's still a big number. Okay, they agreed. Ananias will take it to the church. Sapphira has some errands to run. She'll be along later. And that's what they do. So the scripture says that Ananias brought the money in. He laid it at the feet of the apostle Peter. And now we have to imagine again. I guess Peter was quiet. Ananias says, well, we didn't get everything we asked for what we sold. Peter's quiet. Well, you know, there's a lot of transactional fees. You know what taxes are in the Roman Empire these days. Well, this is the biggest thing we've ever given to anyone. And then we pick up in verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men wrapped him in a sheet and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Was this the price you and your husband received for your land? And I imagine there was a moment when a part of her was kind of glad everyone knew that they'd given such a big gift. And there was another part of her that just didn't want to say that they'd kept some of it for themselves because they just thought it was too much to be given away. She wanted to be a part of this miracle that was happening in the church, and so she lies. Uh, Renee Barr usually comes to the first service. She's a wonderful artist here in the church, and she's put together a, a series of watercolors to take us through this scripture from what we've done to what we haven't done. So let's enjoy that for a moment. But there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. 
As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Was this the price you and your husband received for the land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, How could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Verse 11 says, Great fear gripped the entire church and all the others who heard what had happened. I'll bet! That'll nail your church attendance in the basement floor. What just happened? Did God kill these people because their offering wasn't big enough? Would you like us to pass the little purple bags again so you can have another crack at it? <laughs> Did God kill them for lying? Because a lot of people lie about a lot of things. As a person who's probably like you and just trying to live day to day and do the best I can before God, when I hear a story like this, uh, I am terrified and reminded of two other stories like this in the Bible that are similarly hard to make sense of. You may remember them. The first is the story of Achan in Joshua in the Old Testament. You remember there was a time when the Israelites were wandering nomads and God said, I'm going to give you a promised land, a place to live. Here it is problem. There's already people living here. God says they're a wicked, wild people, and they were. And so you're going to be my instrument, and you're going to remove them from the land. But you're not going to go in there and capture all their wives so you can have a couple extra, and you're not going to enslave their children, and you're not going to steal all their gold idols and melt them down and make stuff for yourself and steal all their livestock. This is not about you getting rich. So you're going to pile all that stuff up. You're going to burn it as an offering to the Lord. I'm giving you the land. That's enough for you. You can build the rest yourself. This isn't a big land grab, and that's how they were supposed to do it. And then came Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. But Israelite violated the instructions of the Lord about the things set apart for the Lord. A man named, a a man named Achans had stolen some of the things dedicated to the Lord. So the Lord was very angry with the Israelites. This guy grabbed a couple of gold idols and hid them under his tent. And so the next time Israel marched out, 3,000 of their soldiers were killed. Over two gold idols? There's another story just as disturbing. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Okay, now we're later in history. Uh, God is uniting the tribes of Israel. He's giving them one king, King David. King David's going to bring the Ark of the Covenant. Remember Ark of the Covenant, Indiana Jones? It is the same box. And, and uh, they're going to bring the, it represents the throne and the holiness of God among the people. They're going to bring it to Jerusalem to set it and then say, we're united and God's holiness is at our center. 
And so now the, the, it represented the holiness in the presence of God. So you weren't supposed to be touching it and manhandling it. After they built it, it had rings on the side. You're supposed to slide two 18-foot poles through the rings, put it up on your shoulders, and carry it where you have. But you're not touching it because it is the holiness of God. Well, the priest Uzzah, whose job it was to move it from where it was to Jerusalem, says, that is a huge headache. We're not walking this box all the way to Jerusalem. So just get an ox cart, put it up there, that'll be good enough. And then verse 6. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out his hand to study the ark of God. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. We're trying to keep it from falling into a ditch. What is up with these holy temper tantrums? And why is it always this kind of stuff that people get struck dead for in the Bible? A stolen idol, a mishandled church artifact, a church offering that's not quite all there. I could think of a lot better people to strike down than that. Why doesn't God ever strike down a murderer in the Bible? Or a child molester? Or how about just... Preachers that cheat old ladies out of the retirement. We got scores of those. What is going on? First of all, I don't think it was about the money. The church made offering voluntary. By the way, I read what, how other religions take their offering and uh, they send you bills, they, they make you buy your seat. I'm never going to listen to Christians gripe about offering again. We're the only religion on earth that does it voluntary that, that I was reading about in the Wall Street Journal. So anyways, it's voluntary. There were Essenes uh, who lived out, uh, at Jesus' time. It was Essenes. They were Jews that lived outside Jerusalem and waited for the end of the world. And if you wanted to join their group, you had to sell everything you have and give it to the community. Required. Church, not required. Uh, in fact, Peter says that to Ananias in verse 4. He says, the property was yours to sell or not sell as you wish. And after selling it, the money was yours to give away or, and implied or not give away. I don't think it was about the money. I also don't think the passages are about gold idols or, or sacred boxes or, or church offerings. I think... It's about lying to God because Peter says it twice. He says it in verse 4 to Ananias. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. And then when Sapphira comes in, he says, How could the two of you even think of doing a thing like this? Conspiring together to test the Spirit of the Lord. But the third thing happening in this passage and the other two, and maybe the most important thing is is what's going on in the people of God, in the story of salvation. By Joshua, right? The, the promised land, the people of God will now have a land given to them by God. Here is your land. And Achan decides it would be clever of him to try to scrape a little money off the side, skim off the miracle of God, make a little money for himself. 2 Samuel and David, a king for Israel, and united Israel in the throne of God at the center of the community. And, and the priest Uzzah decides, it's just too much trouble to have all this holiness of God. Just throw it on an ox cart, drag it on, that'll be good enough. 
and he has to reach up and catch it, you know, like, oh, now all of a sudden we're going to panic and worry about the ark. It wouldn't be falling in a ditch if we hadn't stuck it up on a cart dragged by two animals. And now the church, now the, the word of God going out, the salvation, the story of Jesus going out to the whole world, and radical generosity and all of this wonderfulness. And Ananias and Sapphira decided it would be clever to pretend to participate at a big level in the miracle, but really only participate at a lesser level. At these key moments when God is bringing people his promises, a land, his rule, the church, people, people not unlike me, decide it's time to steal and disobey and fake our way through it. We pull on the dog's ear. We stomp on his tail. We bash him with the hammer. And then when he turns around and bites, we react with total surprise. Where'd that come from? Ananias and Sapphira weren't just trying to pretend to be more generous than they were. They were trifling with the holiness of God at exactly the moment he's trying to give us everything. They had what people would think about them firmly in their mind, and what God would think about them was not even on their radar. Same with Achan in the promised land, and the same with Uzziah the priest handling the ark. At these key moments when the kingdom of God is taking shape, they play games with God. And at these key moments in scriptures, the dog chooses to bite. I have trifled with the holiness of God. When I became pastor here about six years ago, and for the two years, first two years, attendance in worship took a huge leap forward. And the amount of offering and, and what we had to, to do ministry with took a huge leap forward. And the morale and the unity and the energy of the staff took a big step. And while God is doing this great thing for the church, I did say to myself, just out of seminary, I'm pretty good at this. Look at everything I've done. I've now been bitten three times by the big dog. Epic fails in leadership decisions. Diminishing effectiveness. Losing integrity with key people. And I've learned a new Bible verse. Proverbs 29, 23. With pride comes humiliation, but with humility comes honor. So we asked earlier, why didn't God strike down all kinds of sinners? And, and that is the real question. And the story with the dog and the kid, our really our question shouldn't be, why'd that dog bite him after he hit him on the head with a hammer? The real question is, why didn't the, God, the dog bite him every time? Pulling on his ear, stomping on his tail, jumping on his ribs. 
And then when the answer comes back, it tells us something about the dog. The answer is grace. He's a gracious God. He's very slow to anger. Very long-suffering. And not eager to judge. But don't forget, he is the judge. I have a way of interpreting scripture where I feel like the writers of the Bible were smart and they knew the emotions you would feel when you read what they wrote. So you read the story of Ananias and Sapphira and you feel terrified and you feel, uh, that doesn't seem like the kind of God we sang all those wonderful songs to just 15, 20 minutes ago. And I think Luke knew you'd go, who is this? And lean into that, yes. Who is this? And why am I so surprised? Notice you were surprised. You didn't say, yeah, that's the kind of God he is. He's striking people down left and right. He's mad. He's mad all the time. You didn't feel that way. You said, what just happened? And then we saw some other stories where these things have happened before. And what we have is a window into a dimension of God that all of his grace and mercy might cause us to forget was there. His holiness. I used to be a school teacher. As a school teacher, you should be easygoing and you should be um, accepting of the kids. I don't think you should be uptight and judgmental. You should be easygoing and accepting of the kids. But underneath that, there must be an underlying authority. Otherwise, you're just everybody's buddy, and you're not doing what the community has entrusted you to do, which was teach kids a bunch of stuff. So there's an authority underlying your easygoing nature. My mentoring teacher put it this way. He said, use your chain once early every year, and you'll only have to rattle it the rest of the year. <laughs> the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright looked at this story in Ananias and Sapphira, and he made some brilliant comments. He said, we don't like stories of these, of course, like these, of course, but we can't have it both ways. If we watch with excited fascination as the early church does wonderful healings, stands up to bullying authorities, makes converts right and left, and lives a life of astonishing property sharing, we may have to face the fact that if you want to be a community which seems to be taking the place of the temple of the living God, you mustn't be surprised if the living God takes you seriously. Seriously enough to make it clear that there's no such thing as cheap grace. If you invoke the power of the Holy One, the one who will eventually right all wrongs, sort out all cheating and lying, he may just decide to do some of that work already in advance. God will not be mocked. Holiness, in other words, is not an optional extra. How God chooses to make that point in the last analysis is up to him since he's the only one who knows the human heart. If you expect God to right all wrongs, don't be surprised if he does some of it in glimpses along the way. Holiness is not an optional extra. And yet for most of us, our experience teaches us 
The big dog does not usually bite. Not fatally. I've gotten some big bites the last few years, but I'm still here. He's the giver of grace. And day after day, we have another day to find our way, to figure it out. But as we walk, we'd be wise to remember who he ultimately is. And these little windows remind us. He's creator, and he's sustainer, and he's lawgiver, and he's final judge. I think there's also a message of hope uh, in this for some of you, especially those of you who have gotten to that place in your spiritual journey where you're starting to wonder about justice. We say, does God even care about his kingdom and integrity? Because there seems to be a world full of people pulling his ear and giving the integrity of God a black eye. Does he care? And this passage reminds us, yes, he cares. And some of us say, is God going to do anything about the evil in the world? And this passage says, yes, he will do something about the evil in the world. And when we feel powerless in the face of so much corruption and so much money-grubbing and so much lying, and we wonder, will it ever end? This passage and others like it say, yes, it will end. The apostle Peter, who is the main apostle in this story, he went on to write a letter in the Bible to encourage a church, a church that was asking exactly that question. If God's going to right all wrongs, why doesn't he get on with it? Why is it taking so long? And Peter wrote this. By the same word, the, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment. One ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord. And a thousand years is like a day. The Lord really uh, isn't being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake, for my sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. So if you've been lying and you've been full of pride, if you've been sloppy about your prayers, sloppy about your giving, Sloppy about your worship. Sloppy about forgiving. You still have today to make peace with the big dog. To work out salvation with him. From my experience, I will share, I think you can find him quite patient. And quite peaceful. And quite loving. Don't be yanking on his ear and stomping on his tail. He is the Lord God Almighty. In some Christian traditions, after the word of God has been taught, there's just a few moments of silence to consider it and let it sink in. And a tough passage like this, this might be a good day for that. So let's have a few moments before the Lord to consider our lives and, and this word from the book of Acts. Thank you, Nomin. The, the public ministry, at least, the when anybody could come of Lakeland Community Church is 17 years old today. It was, yes. 
It was on this day in 1986 in a restaurant a banquet room above a restaurant that we had our first church service that any of our friends and family co-workers could come to. And uh, what a journey. So uh, Dan and Lori uh, were our founding pastors then. They're still with us, still ministering to the church. I don't know if you know how extraordinary that is. Uh, the average life for a pastor in America uh, at a single church is about 18 months. And most of them only last five years in ministry. Most of the people I went to seminary with are, are no longer uh, ministers. So to have uh, a pastor not just still pastoring, but pastoring in the same place after 17 years is extraordinary, and it's, it's, uh, it's as much about you as, as them, and what an extraordinary congregation you are. So I was wondering if you would help us to make a church birthday present for Dan and Lori. As you came in, I believe you had a little half sheet and uh, we're going to take some time, if you'd like, and just uh, write a, a note that we can give to them um, of encouragement. Something about how the church has touched you or what it's meant to you. Something about the way they heard the call to start a church and were obedient to that call has now flowed into your life. While that's happening, um, Chris and the worship team, they'll... They've prepared a song for us that is a prayer, so I don't think you have to sing along with it. If you know it, feel free. But uh, it's a prayer, and it's a prayer about what we're trying, to, we're trying to do 17 years ago and are still trying to do today and trying to be. And so as you hear this song, I use it as a prayer uh, to quicken our hearts to remind us what we're to be. And, and also write those, and when you're done, you just turn them in to the ushers as you go. Amen. Let's stand together for the benediction. <clears throat> if I have not gotten to meet you before, I'd love to do that. Uh, we have a pastor's with coffee. Coffee with pastors. <laughs> Whatever. I don't even think I have coffee. I think I have juice and water, but we keep the name. I have a pastor with a side of coffee. Thank you. I get one with a robe, though. I like those better. So anyways, we got, I'll be right out there. I'd love to meet you. I don't know why you'd want to meet a blethering idiot like me, but that's where I'll be. And... Um, and that'll be that. And uh, I don't believe I have anything further. So let us recite the Apostles' Creed together, a foundation of our faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. May you go forth in peace.